and uh, keep them in your prayers. All right, 2 Peter chapter 3. And we probably will, uh, we're going to attempt to cover the whole chapter tonight. I'm not particularly in a hurry to cover it, but I think that we probably have time to accomplish it. Um, we're going to read uh, the whole chapter, it's only 18 verses, and then uh, share with you uh, some out of these truths, beginning in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue. They, they were as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that was then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And the Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of Him in peace, without spot, and blameless. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom, wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also other scriptures unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest also being led away with the air of the wicked fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. 
All right, I know that sounds like a lot, uh, but I don't believe it is as much as maybe uh, you would feel. I want you to notice that we are shifting into this final chapter, and as we come into this chapter, uh, Peter is really addressing eschatological issues, the end times, how things are going to uh, progress as we move towards what he calls uh, that great day of the Lord. As Peter is uh, seeking to uh, define here first the, 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 uh, excuse me, the purpose of his epistles. Then once again, he's going to warn of the apostate. That has been his direction for this entire second epistle. Epistle. He is going to instruct as, as to how they can be identified, what we can see, how they will react to uh, these end times prophecies. He's going to encourage us to remember what we have previously read and learned. And he's going to remind us again of our responsibilities as believers. I want you to notice first in the first couple of verses, the Apostle Peter speaks about the purpose of of the two epistles of Peter. There's something interesting here. Uh, we've talked about these epistles in, in detail and their purpose. I don't know if you remember or not, but when we first began talking about 2 Peter, I told you that historically uh, there have been some liberal theologians that would argue against uh, the authorship or the penmanship of the Apostle Peter for 2 Peter. Well, it's interesting in this first verse, uh, what does he say? This second epistle that I write unto you in both. Do you see that? Which uh, stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. So Peter is claiming penmanship, authorship of both of these epistles. So we recognize that. In, in that verse, he, he there's... Three statements there, that uh, three clauses that matter. Stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance that you may be mindful. Those are three different phrases, three different statements, three different facts. If we, if we were to ask Peter, if Peter were here today, and he were to say, uh, we were to say, uh, what was the, just give us the gist of it. Uh, Peter, what's the bottom line? What were you trying to accomplish with these epistles? Uh, I've already told you that uh, we know that he was writing to warn them of persecution from the outside in 1 Peter. And in 2 Peter, he's warning them about perversion from the inside, the apostate. But right here, he identifies that both of these epistles were written to stir up their pure minds, to uh, bring them to a, a place of remembrance, and to help them be mindful. So what do those phrases mean? When we think about this idea of stirring up uh, your pure mind, uh, a better word, by the way, there for pure is sincere. If you, and you may be, if you're holding a, an ESV or an ASB, uh, if you're holding just about anything other than a King James Bible, uh, that word for you right there is most likely sincere. And uh, what we're seeing there in that is that it's, it's not, not that our minds or their minds by, the, by way of implication are any more pure than another, but that because of the relationship that they 
and again, we have with the Lord, and because of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, and because of our general belief in the Scriptures, we would approach this conversation and this subject matter not necessarily with purity as you would think of, pure as the driven snow, but with sincerity as a, a pure interest. There's, there's not a divided interest. You're not, uh, you're not looking here and there. You don't have a double mind. You're, you're not coming to this flippantly. When you study the Scriptures or when you study this epistle, you come in a manner of, of sincerity and sobriety, accepting uh, the, the depth and the breadth of the passage, understanding that it has implications for your life. So when he says to stir up your pure minds, uh, that's what Peter wants to do. And Paul would use a similar uh, uh, phrase in several places to, to uh, as you remember the Word of God, as you think about the work of God in your lives, that you wouldn't do so, again, flippantly or with nonchalance or with indifference, rather with sincerity, desiring to know and understand what is the truth. How does it apply? How can I walk according to that truth? I'm approaching it with sincerity, with a pure mind. But then he says, by way of remembrance. And we see this phraseology also often in the epistles. And the idea is that by reminding or inspiring remembrance of what was written, what was stated, what was recorded, or what was experienced. Peter is stating that what he hopes to do is stir up, and again, that is wake up or stimulate or arouse or inspire our thinking by reminding us of what has been stated in the Word of God by the prophets of God, by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, and then in return by the apostles. So as we... Uh, look into the scriptures, we are uh, inspired, we are aroused, our thoughts are awakened. Uh, we're not just reading a book of antiquity. Uh, we're not just reading something that was written uh, thousand years, thousands of years ago, over, over thousands of years by 40 some odd different authors. We're actually reading the inspired word of God that the book of Hebrews would de describe as quick and alive and able to separate and divide even the soul from the spirit. And so we are reading, we're doing so with a sincere mind. And then as we come to it, uh, we think about, we remember, we, we're reading here and we say, hey, I remember seeing this in another passage. I remember experiencing this uh, in church or in Sunday school. I remember this pastor that taught thus and thus, and we're connecting those things in sincerity by way of remembrance. Another way that we might say this would apply today is anytime this uh, is performed by the preaching of the Word of God or the teaching of the Word of God or the diligent reading of the Word of God, uh, your mind is being stirred up by way of remembrance. And then he says that you might be mindful. Again, you may see the phrase that you should remember. You may see that phrase. Again, the intensity of 
the Greek word here is more than just a memory. It's not uh, that you just have a memory and it gives you the warm fuzzies for a moment, or, or you have a memory and, and you, you are reminisced for a moment or something along those lines. The intensity is, uh, it's not just a recall of situations or words or people or places. The implication is remembering as an action. That I'm not just recalling information, but because of that remembrance, I'm applying the knowledge of that remembrance to the current situation. Think about where, there's a number of verses you could do this with, but think about where Paul says, be angry and sin not. In that passage, he talks about not letting the sun go down on your anger. If you do, you're giving a place to the accuser. You're giving a place to Satan. and He has a way to work in your psyche all night long while you sleep on that anger and that hurt. And uh, how would remembrance, stirring up a pure mind by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful, look, well, it may look in that situation that, you know, your wife runs out of gas. You're like, hey, there's a gauge for that. <laughs> and uh, instead of uh, getting angry, which I would not, that's nothing, that doesn't matter, but instead, that, that occurs, and instead of getting angry and losing your temper and going to bed mad, uh, by way of remembrance, your mind is stirred up because you read in the Word of God and you say, you know what, I'm not going to get angry about that and, and we're not going to fight about that and we're not going to bed angry. Uh, it's that idea. That, so in these epistles, Peter has warned, again, persecution from without, perversion from within, and now as we approach the end of the writing, the summary, the summary of action revolves around remembrance of what is written or spoken in the Word of God and the application of that knowledge to what we're seeing or experiencing today. That's a very timeless truth right there. How important do you suppose a daily, sincere intake of the Word of God is in your Christian walk? You just answer that for yourself. But I believe that's where the stirring up and the mindfulness would begin. How, how observed do you suppose that daily intake of the Word of God is? I mean, I heard the other day uh, uh, an individual talking about time that we have in the week. The, the average person, this is a working person, the average working professional has 37 hours of discretionary time every week. 37 hours of discretionary time every week. Listen, 
If you don't want to feel bad for the next two days, tune me out for a couple minutes. Because it rocked my world the other day. 37 hours of discretionary time in the week. That's a whole nother work week. Well, then the question is, what are you doing with that discretionary time? And of course, he had averages on a television viewing, which is minuscule compared to screen time. Handheld devices, phones, tablets, and so on and so forth. And he was talking about those averages and how that discretionary time is just being burned up and it's not being used for anything uh, proper. But, but where I went with it, and it immediately uh, struck me is how, how much of that 37 hours of discretionary time are we spending in the Word or in prayer or in meditation or in thought, in mindfulness about God's place in our life and God's purpose in our life and His power in our life and His work in our life, His will in our life. I mean, you could just write sermon after sermon on that idea. And uh, Peter's saying here, look, uh, the idea is to, to stir up the mind so you'll be mindful of these truths. And then I would ask this question, is there a way in which you personally could positively impact your daily intake of the Word? Because I think this idea of uh, mindful stirring up and, and sincere intake of the Word, I think it's causing us some troubles within the church. Pro not proper, but the church. Look, look next at verses 3 and 4. So, so we recognize the purpose for the writing. Look at verses 3 and 4, and, and Peter's going to share with us uh, the perspective of the apostate towards Christ's return. How does a typical apostate uh, view the idea of the return of Christ or the possibility of the return of Christ? How, what do they say about the return of Christ? And by the way, uh, you're going to meet these folks. Keep in mind, uh, you're going to see them in your daily walk and in your, in your spiritual walk because Peter is not talking about people who have from the outside in uh, had a, a, an attack upon the church. He's talking about people who from the inside out have apostatized against the truth and become false teachers and false te uh, preachers. He compared them to the false prophets uh, for the nation of Israel. And so we're talking about folks within uh, really what you would call Christendom or the, the church, but not, not the invisible church, the church as an entity. They're, they're within. And so these things would say to you, okay, if I hear somebody saying these things, it would identify them for me as, as an apostate. So look at verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So this is the perspective of the apostate concerning Christ's return. And I would imagine uh, when you think about this, when, when you read this, when you hear me say that these are apostates within the church and you may run into them within the church, I would imagine that it, it feels as if that's, that's extreme. 
Like that's just a spooky preacher talk, uh, you know, whatever. That's extreme. That's not something that I'm probably going to encounter. I'm less likely to encounter that type of an attitude over some other uh, belief issue. Uh, But I would share this with you. It's probably the prevailing opinion amongst non-believers and it's possibly the prevailing opinion among liberal um, theologians who we would look at their doctrine and say, okay, that's, that is heresy or apostasy. And the truth is, we don't see them scoffing rude every day, right? You probably have not had anybody come up to you lately and get up in your space about your belief that Christ is going to return. But the question would be, when's the last time that you got up in somebody else's face and explained to them that Christ is going to return and they need to repent? Because that's where you would meet them. They're not going to uh, typically, they're not going to attack you and say, you know, that, that, that stuff you believe about uh, God returning and, and judgment on the earth, and all that's a bunch of malarkey. They're not, they're not just going to do that. They're, what you're going to see is, if you're not daily challenging their sinfulness, and th- this is not in any way an implication that you should be out there on the street corner challenging their sinfulness, I'm telling you, you don't see the the scoffing because you're not out there challenging it. Uh, I was just reading the other day. uh, Are you guys, if I say I was reading a thread, does that make sense to everybody? So uh, it was on LinkedIn, uh, which is a professional website. Uh, It's not like a typical Instagram or whatever. And this lady had posted something uh, uh, concerning... The, the moral state of America and the return of Christ and the judgment. And, and by and large, what she said was correct. Maybe a little hyperbolic, but by and large, what she said was correct. She was, <laughs> I was shocked at the open attack and how many of them were saying specifically, none of that is true. Jesus is not real. Uh, Christ is not real. God is not real. He's not coming back. These are, these are professional folk. You know, CEOs and business people. That's, that's who's on there. And, uh, and I mean, it was, the thread was just full of that attack. It made me think of this passage. And, and of course, as the threads go, somebody should have hushed. And they didn't, and so it just continued to get worse. So, but it, it's the idea that if if you just look at the way folks are living, if you if you determine what we're going to see tonight about what is preparedness as is relative to the return of Christ, and then you look at the way uh, the vast majority or the public at large are living, there's an absolute indication that that is pretty obvious. In fact, that they don't believe. Uh, the way that, uh, that we do concerning what the end looks like, or else they would live differently 
They don't believe in a returning Savior or a ruling Savior or an exclusive Savior. And so Peter's writing about this to a church that was very much being attacked. And you and I are, are kind of subliminally being attacked. I, I feel like the latter may be more dangerous. Uh, most of us would, most believers hard pushed would back into a corner and then stand their ground. We're not hard pushed. Uh, we're whittled at. It's like water running over a rock. Soon enough, it does its damage. This is the idea that, and so I suppose the question would be then so we have this perspective of these apostates, so why don't they believe? Well, Peter answers that here. First, he says uh, they are. Uh, walking after their own lust. And so uh, we would say this, they're driven by their own sin or they are selfishly lustful. So uh, we would quote some scriptures. Christ would say, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Paul would say, such were some of you in times past. He would go on to say in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in trespasses and sin. Uh, Paul would teach, Christ would teach, Peter would teach, John would teach, James would teach that, that in, you're in bondage to sin, that you're subservient to the world, to the flesh, to, the, to Satan. That's the picture of this apostate. They are, they are, uh, they are a non-believer. They are somebody that's willingly ignorant. Peter would say they have turned from the truth. But why would they do that? Well, it's because they are captive to the sin nature. The 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 unsaved uh, sinner, the unsaved person, lives simply to satisfy the desires of the flesh. That's it. Listen, I want to tell you something that's pretty convicting. A lot of born-again believers live simply to satisfy the desires of the flesh. We're losing that fight. But the, the, the difference is the born-again believer has got an indwelling Holy Spirit. They have a convicting Holy Spirit that says to them, that's wrong. Hey, you shouldn't do that. Hey, that's not right. Hey, that's against the Word of God. These, these folks that we're talking about, they don't have that. So it feels good and they do it. And they do it because it feels good. And there's nothing to contradict the desires of the flesh. They, they cannot understand things of the Spirit or things of promise or things of an eternal value because they don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. The, they would be described in the Scriptures as their minds are darkened, their eyes are blind. Their conscience is seared. A Christ would call them in John chapter 8, the children of Satan. And so what the apostate needs, they're an apostate, so they're not going to get it. They've willfully turned. But what they need is salvation. Peter basically is describing these folks and, and he's saying these are the apostates who have forsaken the truth and embraced the lie or the lie, if you look at the person of Satan. But the difficult part for Peter and for us is that these folks are in the church. They are among us. And John would say, they go out from us because they're not one of us, but they're still among us. Not only 
are they, they among us, uh, is, is how we're seeing it today uh, and have been seeing for some time. They, they're the tares uh, in the parable of the tares and the wheat. They look, walk, talk, and act like a believer. There's just no fruit produced. They are that proverbial wolf in sheep's clothing. They are the wicked shepherds that Zechariah would describe. They're the blind guides that Christ would speak of. They're the false prophets. They are scoffers. And so that's why they're driven by their own sinful lust. The the proof that they offer is in verse 4. And this is what they will say. It hasn't happened yet. So it's never going to happen. It's, it, depending on which timeline you go by, you know, it's a minimum of 6,000 years since uh, God's uh, story of dealing with mankind began. Minimum. It's 2,000 years since Christ died on the cross and was resurrected and ascended and put the church on watch. Uh, we're 2,000 years deep, basically, into the last days. And so these scoffers, that's the proof they have, is they'll say, look, uh, it's not happened. It's not going to happen. Think of all the people that have died. Think of all the generations that have come and gone. Think of all of the people that believe just like you and they're over there rotting in the grave. It's not, it hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. That's the proof that they offer. They're trying to tell you that the Word of God is wrong. When in reality, the Word of God has never been wrong. Peter's going to define that. They're going to say, listen, these promises are from old times, times past, but they have not come to pass yet. They probably will never come to pass. You need to adjust what you're believing. Peter says in verse 5, for this they willingly are ignorant. Do you see that? This is describing the apostate. They're willingly ignorant. They've chosen not to believe. They've chosen not to uh, read and believe. Peter's going to spend the next several verses, 5 through 13, talking about the proper view of time according to the Scripture. And this answers the issue of it hasn't happened yet. The, the, the problem is, they are viewing time from mine and your perspective. And the Bible is clear that God is outside of time. Time does not register. Time does not matter. Look, look at how Peter starts. He, he first starts talking about the past world in verses 5 and 6. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that was then, or then was, being overflowed with water, perished. So Peter starts first by talking about how the world was created. He says, look, uh, the Word of God is responsible for this world. Uh, God is the Creator. 
we know that even in, in times past, the, the, the world was because God created it. That Word of God is what brought the world to be, the heavens and the earth of old, uh, that was of God, and that world was then overflowed with water. So he goes directly to the flood. He says if we go to the past world, we're looking at the flood, we're, what he's recognizing there is that's a judgment, that's on, on a, a, a worldwide level, that is a, something that was prophesied for 120 years and not believed. There were scoffers then as well. It is uh, something that in all destroyed all life except for those who were in the ark. And there were scoffers then that failed to believe. So the ignorance is of the fact that the world was formed by the Word of God. So if God formed it, He can judge it. If He created it, He can destroy it. If He brought it into existence, He can remove it from existence. They're ignorant of that fact, and they're ignorant of the fact that the flood was commanded by the Word of God. They're ignorant to the fact that the flood ended based upon the Word of God. Every bit of that was spoken by God Every, the, the creation, but then the flood as well. The condemnation was spoken by God. He comes directly into verse 7, verses 7 through 12, and he begins talking about, we're not looking at the past world anymore, we're looking at the present world. He said, but the heavens and the earth which are now. So that was in his day, but it's the same heaven and earth today. Nothing's changed. The heaven and earth which are now, by the same word. Where did they come from? They were spoken by the same word, the word of God. By the same word. And what's going on with them? They're kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and the perdition or the ruin or the destruction of godly, ungodly men. So, uh, Peter says, listen, uh, they're ignorant of the fact that God spoke it into existence. They're ignorant of the fact that God has wiped it all out once already. They're ignorant of the fact that those same heavens and earth are the heavens and earth that we see today. The same Word of God, the Word that created, the, the Word that condemned, the Word that commanded that previous world is still in place today. And that world Word is holding the the heavens and the earths in store for judgment, and that judgment is going to be by fire, and it will destroy again, and it will do away with all of the ungodly again. So Peter's saying, you, you say it hasn't happened yet, it has happened once already. And it's going to happen again. So those scoffers or someone listening to one of those scoffers might say, well, it's been so long. How do we know? I mean, truthfully, they've been saying that forever. You, but you guys may have this. Uh, you raised in church. Raise your hand if you're raised in church. Been in church all your life. Did you grow up in a church that preached in such a manner? It may just be me. I may be weird. That you thought, 
I won't ever, I won't ever graduate high school. The Lord's going to come back before then. Man, I won't ever get to drive a car. God's going to come back before then. I, won't, I mean, when I was celebrating my 16th birthday, I wasn't celebrating that I made it. I was celebrating that he hadn't come back yet. And, and, uh, and that, that, that thought was in my mind. And uh, even though I was, I was relatively godless at the time, I was in a church that preached it, and, and I believed it to be the truth. I just wasn't obedient to it. And, and so it's been so long, and, and it's true, that it has been many years it's been a lot of years since those prophecies came and, and, and went. It's been a lot of years since Christ was crucified. And it could be disconcerting, but the, we would remember this. God is outside of time. God is not controlled by He's not contained in time. He's eternal. He always has been. He always will be. He is the self-existent one. He, is, he always is. I am. That's what that means. I'm all, I always am. I am in every situation. And so well, we would see that. that, that. And, then, and then Peter says here uh, uh, that be not ignorant. Uh, one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. He's quoting Psalm chapter 90 verse 4. That's what this says. For a thousand years... In thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, as a watch in the night. He's, he's, we're not making the comparison. And I hear people say this all the time. I know they don't particularly mean it this way. It's not literal that a thousand years is a day with God. That's not literal. By that token, uh, I've heard this. Uh, by that token... Uh, Christ has only been gone for two days and everything happens on the third day so that means we've got another thousand years of this mess. See, that's, that's not, that's private interpretation. It doesn't mean literally that a day is a thousand years in God's economy. What it means is that, that time doesn't matter to God. It's not an issue with Him. It, it's not something that he can, he's not constrained or concerned with time. Uh, the book of Isaiah would teach that his ways are actually, his ways are, are higher than eyes, uh, ours. And he sees things from a different perspective. We've heard the, uh, the illustration all of our life of us looking down on a fire ant or an ant trail and how we can see where they're coming from, where they've been, where they're going. We can see that ant's whole life. In one quick little glimpse. Well, that's how God sees our life. Except at a more infinitesimal level. Uh, even, more, even more hard to understand than that. He's not relegated to our schedule. So Peter says, doesn't matter that it feels like a long time. It, it's, time doesn't matter to God. Well, then the question might be, well, why would he wait? The world is so wicked. And people are so wicked. Why would he wait? And, and Peter uh, says there, the Lord's not slack, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So why would he wait? Well, he would wait because he has a desire to see sinners repent. He would wait because he's not willing that any would perish 
He has a desire to see folks live. Simply waiting as long as possible for that last sinner, for the times of the Gentiles to be fulfilled. And you and I don't know when that is. But the day will come. And that's what Peter says. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. I'm going to quit right here and we'll pick this up next week. The day is going to come. The next question we're going to ask is what should we do until then? We'll come back to that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this time of Bible study. Thank you, Lord, for your truths that are forever settled. God, I pray that you'd help us as we leave tonight after our prayer time. Lord, I pray that you would help us to apply these truths, that we would be diligent in our study of the Word of God, that we would be faithful in our witness, and that we would be sure of the truth. Father, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.